first guests and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate, agitate, agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects of people who help combat it. Today is the January 4, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, our first broadcast of the year. During 2016, we kicked ass, took names, and agitated like Frederick Douglass and Amiri Baraka told us to do. The results were a year full of victories from all areas. We know, like you know, that thanks to an army of new abolitionists all over the country constantly confronting, teaching, exposing, organizing, and building, for the first time in 150 years, legalized slavery and its agents have had to fight back. And in case you hadn't heard, thanks to your support and massive growth, BTRN is entering 2017 as the largest black podcast and radio station in the world. Now, let's get the rundown. Tonight, we will have our first guest of the year, George Malinquart, prison plantation whistleblower who wrote this book on his experience in getting away with murder, a true story. The book is a true crime story that discusses the circumstances around the killing of Darren Rainey, who was horrifically murdered at the Dade Correctional Institutional Institution in unincorporated Miami-Dade County, Florida, on June 23, 2012. The prison is in proximity to Florida City and is south of Homestead. In the news, in a big win for freedom's sake, Vermont's Governor Peter Shumlin declared that the drug war has failed, and he plans to pardon thousands of people convicted for pot. In a system that screams unconstitutional, a county in Minnesota has come under fire for its practice of making all arrestees pay a booking fee at the time of their arrest, regardless of whether they are charged or convicted of a crime. It is a case that is going all the way to the Supreme Court. Thanks to one of our listeners and fellow abolitionists, we found out why they are doing this deal. California Prison Industry Authority, C-A-L-P-I-A, is blaming its over 7,000 prisoners employed for pennies an hour for injuries they receive on the job while in prison. 
This is a rat's nest of illegal and unconstitutional acts by the state and federal government. We hope to help it further here today. A Roseville, North Carolina school cop brutally body slammed a teenage high school girl again. We've got we've seen this just far too often now, and it has to stop. A squad of Durham, North Carolina police illegally entered a family's home over an alleged weed smell, and then proceeded to violate every right they have and brutalize the entire family. We've got the video right here on NAR. A rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Daniel Larson, who was convicted of possession of a concealed weapon after two police officers testified they saw him toss a knife under a nearby car in the parking lot of a bar. Unfortunately, Danny's now disbarred trial attorney failed to discover as many as nine witnesses, including a former chief of police from North Carolina who saw another man, not Danny, toss the knife. Danny's trial attorney did not call a single witness, and as a result, Danny was convicted and sentenced to 27 years to life in prison pursuant to California's three strikes law. Danny had prior convictions that occurred nearly a decade earlier. Our abolitionist in profile this week will be provided by Scotty Reed. You can now listen to the live stream on Black Talk Radio's YouTube page. If you'd like to share a comment or question, call in toll-free from the U.S. and Canada at 1-866-510-9025 or 704-802-5056. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com, Black Talk Radio Network. Remember, it's much less painful to find the truth than it is for the truth to find you. What's happening, Scotty? What's up, Johanna? Hey, what's going going on, Max? Peace. Peace. Quick correction, Max. Although I don't really like to advertise the fact. Happy but New Year, twenty seventeen. I'm sorry. Can you can you hear me, Johanna? Johanna. Okay. Uh, yeah. What I was trying to say is is that yeah, we're streaming in a number of places: YouTube, um, Twitter. Um, also, the for the first time, New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page. We're going to start utilizing that Facebook page for the live stream capabilities, just as the Black Talk Media Project just tries to increase increases global reach with new black media for the new millennium. So I'm excited about that. But of course, we share the live stream from the New Abolitionist page to our Black Talk Radio Network Facebook page, and then there is btrcommunity.com. So there is no shortage of ways that you can tune in to the program, and we're glad that so many uh, do that each and every week. All right. Anyway, as I, I was just trying to say Happy New Year to both of y'all. Max uh, said it in the intro, what we had going on last year. Put in, um, you know, the podcast that we put out there. I don't think we missed anything at all last year. I know we've had uh, maybe one or two, I think, over the years that I've been a part of the program, but I don't think we missed. So, uh, we yeah, saw some results, definitely. Indeed, Happy New Year's, brothers. Last year, we did kick some ass, take some names for sure, man. Uh, just so much we, we documented, we chronicled, we inspired, we assisted with, did directly, personally. 
just so many things. And we even ended up with a, a wonderful award from Missouri Cure on uh, with New Abolitionist Radio on behalf of our work, which was the day that you and I finally got to actually meet. And you were as shocked as I was, I'm sure. I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't have any idea they had any awards set up for us, so that was good to uh, for everybody to meet, to uh, see you and travel in the flesh, and uh, and keep doing this work we're doing. So I feel like everybody's refreshed. We hit the first of the year. We start out strong. We're gonna maintain that thing hard against this system, man. Um, you mentioned that uh, in the intro, uh, some of the the stories that we got that come out tonight. Um, looking forward to uh, speaking with George Malincrot if he can make it back on the program tonight because so much has happened in the state of Florida since we last had him on and he's also grown so much as an abolitionist I don't know if longtime listeners remember the first time we had him on he was not that long uh, that he had left working for the uh, Florida Department of Corrections as a psychotherapist and uh, with the situation that happened with Darren Rainey, I think he also had some insight into what happened with uh, Randall Jordan Aparo, with the, how they maced him to death. He saw deaths in custody and knew that the mental health issues they had, uh, mental health treatment they had down there was just completely in violation of human rights and civil rights, uh, constitutional rights all the way around. So I'm interested in seeing, uh, hearing from him and seeing what he has learned and uh, what his his take is on everything from, you know, the Florida Senate last year proposing legislation, which went to the House and got canned, and then end up they never passed anything, so no oversight, no new committee to try to address any of these issues, and then they also had that settlement for the whistleblowers, where they paid out uh, paid out some money to whistleblowers that had come out and told them all this information to risk their lives, really, and and their, of course their careers. So, yeah, um, yo, yo, honey, uh, I think we do. And I'd like you to lead us in in the interview with uh, Mr. Malincrot, being that you set it up. But I think we may have him on the line. Uh, Mr. Malincrot, do we have yes. you on the line? Yes, sir. Thank you for joining yes, us. Yes, I'm on now. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we hear you just fine. So I'm going to turn it back over Please, to... Uh, Thanks, Thanks, sir. Great to be Good back to have on. you back, sir. Yeah, happy, happy, happy New Year, year, and I hope you, you guys had a great holiday season. Everything was good. Everything was good. Man. I'm glad you were able to make it back on. I don't know if you heard before formally introduce you, you know, back on. I don't know if you heard some I of did. what I was saying, but uh def- okay, definitely looking forward to I mean so much has happened since we had you on before and so much has happened uh with the Department of Corrections. Um if you don't mind, would you would you give us, you know, just a the basics of who you are, what you do, and, and how you've evolved as an abolitionist since we first had you on the program. Sure. Um, I was on, I think, about two years ago, and mm-hmm. at the time, the story broke about the psychiatric unit in the Florida State Prison where I worked as a psychotherapist. I was there almost three years. Uh, I was the only mental health professional who tried to do right by our patients who were being uh, tormented, taunted, abused, uh, manhandled, beaten. And I was, I was the lone voice, and, and they fired me when I wouldn't go along with the beating of an inmate. They wanted everybody just to stay silent about it. 
And uh, in that particular instance, a man was taken into a hallway where there were no cameras, and he was cuffed behind his back, thrown to the concrete floor, and four or five officers just proceeded to kick the crap out of him. And, you know, they, they may have killed the guy, but my coworker, Carmen, saw the whole thing from another door through a big glass window and she pounded on the the window stop 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 and they finally did and she feared retaliation from the guards to the point where on the report she wrote down that she didn't see a thing and uh you know that didn't sit too well with me and when that guy uh was in one of my uh uh groups he, he told uh, the story of getting beaten, and the other patients that were in the group, the other men, uh, corroborated his story, and they told that he, he was just dragged off, and, you know, the next time they, he, they, they saw him, he, he had bruises all over his body. He pulled up his shirt to show me his bruises, and, and so basically they just wanted to cover that up, keep everything uh, as if nothing happened, and and uh, so I was fired by by trying to do right by my patients, and and then uh, ten months later, I get a frantic phone call from Carmen, my my coworker who's still working there. First three words out of her mouth, they killed him, and it turned out it was Darren Rainey. Uh, a, a man suffering from paranoid schizophrenia that was put into a specially rigged shower by uh, two guards who they controlled the temperature and they turned on only the hot water that was over 180 degrees and they scalded the poor man to death. Uh, so I, I launched uh, into efforts to get him justice and I was pretty much getting nowhere when the Miami Herald published the first story and it it was about my unit. It was uh, the the uh, a former patient named Harold Hempstead uh, stepped forward and told of uh, the Darren Rainey uh, uh, situation and other abuses. So then I followed right behind him in the second Miami Herald story. I stepped forward publicly. Other people chose to remain anonymous, but I I told of what I saw there and what I tried to do to change things. And, you know, I, I mentioned that these guards would abuse patients just for the sport of it, just for fun. Um, so then uh, to, to bring your listeners up to date, the Miami Herald has published 150 stories about the prison brutality and cover-up scandal that's just pretty much rocked every Florida prison. And um, they've done a great job of exposing the abuses that have occurred not only in mental health units and against the severely mentally ill, but at Lowell Correctional Institution, which is the largest women's prison in the United States. There, there were a lot of horrible things going on there. Uh, you mentioned Randall Jordan Aparo. He was a man who was gassed to death by guards. Um, investigators found out about it, and they were told by the, uh, the uh, uh, his name was Jeff Beasley at the time, 
he was he was the uh the head of the not the DOC but the uh like their their attorney let's say I'll I'll get that straight soon but anyway he he told them to um stop the investigation and he he tried to make them uh you know stay silent as well and and when they wouldn't um and, and the way the way that that sort of unfolded is in in January of 2015, I testified before the Criminal Justice Committee in Tallahassee, and then about a month later, these investigators got up under oath and told of uh, the abuses that they uncovered and and how um, they were told to stop investigating. And the day after, they were hit with with like six internal investigations they were accused of all sorts of things they didn't do and then what and and then what happened is um that became a scandal a cover-up scandal and just uh last month they were awarded eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars about half of which was taxpayer money to settle their whistleblower lawsuit um and and basically what instead of the Florida Department of Corrections just coming forward and saying, hey, we got a problem, let's fix it, they go up, they go into cover-up mode. And, and I, I, I will never quite understand that because all of this stuff comes out eventually and then it looks really bad that they tried to cover it up. That this is, this is not just Florida, this is all over the United States that this happens. Um, I think that that might have been the thing that really brought you out when you started realizing that this was happening in far more than just Florida, huh? Absolutely. Um, and and as my public profile has risen and more people know about me, I'm contacted by people who have loved ones on the inside from all around the country, and they tell me about abuses everywhere. It seems that there's no state that abuse does not happen. It's it's going on everywhere. And as we know, in every prison and jail, you can get whatever drug you want. And they're, they're pretty much very corrupt places, and the guards are the ones that are bringing in most of the contraband. You know, so this is a... this is an ongoing situation that's, that's not showing any signs of changing, and, and in Florida, um, as you said, a promising prison reform bill was put forward, and then it, it died on the House floor. And so we're hoping in this next legislative session, um, they'll put another, a similar bill forward where, where the group that I'm with, and, and your listeners can join this group as well, it's called Stop Prison Abuse Now, or SPAN, it's on Facebook, uh, I encourage everybody to reach out and join this group because even though we're a new group, we're, we're getting some things done. And so Did we're in contact. Uh, that's SPAN, S-P-A-N, Stop Prison Abuse Now, and that's on Facebook. Okay. And you can... you. Uh, every, I encourage everybody out there to join SPAN, and we're speaking to legislators now in, with this new new crop of people that got elected, and the there's a new chairman 
for the Criminal Justice Committee, Senator Bracey, and he he introduced a bill uh, that uh, was a, a very powerful prison reform bill as well, and it was patterned after the Senate version, because he was once a uh, representative, but now he's a senator. So hopefully he's going to introduce uh, some strong legislation because um, as far as I can tell, the, the, the Florida prison system is about as broke as it can get. I mean, we it's underfunded, which is a huge problem, but the, the biggest problem is that there's this culture of brutality that no one seems to be willing to address. The, the uh, Secretary Julie Jones never makes any mention of it. She just says, well, we're having prison riots because there's not enough staffers. Let me tell you, if, if these guards treated the men with respect, as I did when I worked in prison, they would get the respect back. And these uh, inmates would not be so out of control because instead of uh, an us against them, it would be, hey, you know, we're in this together. Facilities are really bad, but, you know, let's tough it out. And I, and I guarantee you there wouldn't be these prison riots. Mr. Uh, part of these riots are, are, are due to the poor treatment these men receive on a daily basis. Yeah, well, Mr. Malincroft. You, well, you know how we feel about it, George. Uh, we see this as symptoms of something larger, and that larger being slavery. If they weren't hunting so damn many people and disregarding the lives of people who are not white and just tossing them in these cages that are not fit for animals and then treating them like they're less than human, many of these problems wouldn't even exist. Uh, I do have a question. Um Mr. Yeah. Malin Cry. My question to your point before we uh, move on uh, too far from it, but you mentioned the politicians and their uh, indifference, I think, or apathy, I think, and, and the prison guards. But um, how big of, with the, speaking politically, we know, um, at least most people should know, um, especially how they've been so visible speaking out against Black Lives Matter. But these police unions, whether they're the national police unions, uh, you also have prison uh, guard unions and whatnot, and they spend a lot of resources. So I'm looking at, you know, a, a prison guard, if he sees that his union is getting other people out of trouble and what have you, or the power that they're able to exert so that the politicians don't enact laws. I mean, how big of a problem do you see that being in Florida? What is the side? I mean, what kind of of resistance are you seeing from police and uh, prison guard unions in Florida? Yeah, I, they, they definitely are a powerful union. And several years ago, I was speaking to somebody uh, in the union locally. And it, uh, well, let me preface this by saying that there are really good correctional officers out there. Okay. The thing is, they know what's going on with their fellow officers that are bringing in contraband, organizing fight clubs, you name it, but because of retaliation, they will almost never step forward against these uh, co-workers that are committing crimes. 
and the unions are there. I mean, they've got a job to do. It's it's part of their job is to um, protect their you know their people. Okay, so they're they're handcuffed in a way because let's say a very corrupt guard gets arrested. Well, the union steps in and they get them attorneys and so on and so forth. I mean, that's their job. And so we, we can't blame the unions for doing their job. But on the other hand, they're not really, uh, you know, trying to remove these criminals from their ranks. And so they're against any sort of legislation that would uncover these types of crimes. Like, for example, the, the prison reform bill, the centerpiece of it was an independent oversight committee. And I don't think unions want that. You know, they want all this stuff to stay hidden and just keep it going. And and so the but obviously that's not working. We've tried that for about a hundred years and look where it's got us. So, you know, these unions need to rethink things and, you know, realize that, you know, they they have a lot of criminals and, and sociopaths and psychopaths in their ranks. People that'll do horrible things to other people. So well, I don't know if that to, is yeah. To that to that point though, is what you're talking about with the unions. Um, those in Florida may know, uh, to the listeners that are not aware, several years ago, you know, with the Geo Group being based in Boca Raton, right. there was a strong there was a strong push to privatize all prisons in the state of Florida, and it's reported uh, and the evidence supports it that the only thing that stopped Florida from having a state full of nothing but privatized prisons was the Fraternal Order of Police and a few other police uh, unions that ha that have uh, correctional guards as their members as they realized they would be losing out to, they would lose their state jobs. They would lose the jobs that they had and everything would become privatized. That's the only thing that really stopped that because as you know, uh, uh, Charlie Chris and uh, Governor Scott are both prison privateers. They're both lob lobbyist guys. They're, they're all for it. So as they've been kind of rotating between the governorship over the last several terms, they were both likely to push that through, but the the uh, fraternal uh, order uh, of police and the other guards unions all came together and said, "We want to keep our state jobs." Right, and and part of that though is that um, a lot of those guards that worked in these prisons would be absorbed by GEO. Like for example, I worked for a number of prize, private uh, prison providers of of mental health and medical services. And with, with each new employer, um, we just got shifted into their system and, you know, no one was fired, no one knew was really hired, but the administrators were different. So I suspect some of that would have happened when the prisons are privatized because um, when you think of, there, there are 15,000 guards in in Florida prisons, or, or maybe a little more, right around that number. That's a lot of people that GEO would have to come up with. So they just sort of recycle the existing guards, and maybe they would fire some and use some of their own. But I, you know, I think that that effort at privatization died because other legislators um, sabotaged
sabotage that effort. They didn't want, they could see that privatizing prisons was going to be a huge mistake. And among them was a former senator by the name of Paula Dockery. She was a Republican from Lakeland, Florida, and she was the head of the Criminal Justice Committee uh, many years back. She was in the legislature for 16 years. And so she had a part in uh, keeping the prisons within the the regular prison system. And, and I think Geo only got six prisons out of a total of 56. But, uh, you know, uh, Scott, uh, he was very well known for trying to privatize. And when the unions didn't go along with it, he ended up uh, managing to to take funds from the prison system to the point where literally they're having to ask for donations from from let's say hotel chains that have some extra sheets or uh, I mean it, it really it's that bad right now the the trucks and the vans um, are in disrepair I know that in in the prison where I worked in the the air conditioning didn't work for a year and a half and and that and you couldn't open any windows and in South Florida that's murder <laughs> so this this system down here is 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 in a horrible state and the legislators are not pouring any more uh, are not putting any money into it so we're going to continue to scrape by I think Florida per person spends uh, less than almost every prison system in the United States we end up spending about $20,000 a year I think New York spends $55,000 a year per, per inmate so it's it you know we're just scraping by and it's not not good no it's it's not good at all you know you mentioned earlier well first let me reiterate so people understand that you're speaking as a witness not only as a witness who was there when the events occurred watched the things around it occur uh, occur but also have testified uh before uh politicians bodies of politicians and uh about this instance and more and you said that the inmates were being tormented, abused, and beaten. You said that employees of that facility feared retaliation from the guards themselves, fellow employees. And you said that inmates were being abused by guards for confidential confessions that they made during psychotherapy sessions uh, about what was going on to them and around them. And we know that later on, because this has been going on now for several years, later on, it was deemed that the death of Darren Rainey was an accident. And this was at a time when the, uh, and the story just from from uh, Sean King that came out saying that at that time, there was a record of 46 inmates who had died in these prisons in Florida, and that dozens of guards were being uh, terminated. And then we've seen the follow-up where the warden of that prison, who was, uh, according to this uh, report, is a black man himself, said that he became the fall guy. I don't understand how it is you can be a warden, have your employees fearing other employees who are brutalizing both the inmates and uh, scaring or uh, terrorizing their fellow employees and not be held responsible for it, claiming you're a fall guy. 
And I think, as you know, like I do, it goes even higher than that. We should be looking up towards the governor's office who feels this is not a priority. Where life and death and people dying and burning to death and boiling to death are not priorities in his state. Particularly when we know that a great majority of those people who are in the jails and the prisons are there behind debts or minor possession charges or nonviolent uh, drug related charges. Yeah, yeah. And the the prison system is the largest state agency under Governor Scott. And you know, he he just continually looks the other way and looks at ways that he can gloss things over. Uh, and it's not working. It's all coming out. Uh, the warden you were speaking about, uh, that was Jerry Cummings. He was the warden in my prison. And I told him, I spoke to him face to face, and I said, our men are being abused. And I gave him a lot of examples of how they're being abused, including the beating of my patient. And he asked me to do reports when I heard about abuse. And so I was starting to churn out these reports. But he, I found out after I got fired, he did nothing. He did nothing. And then given that I was the only one making any noise and really trying to get things changed, once I was gone, that gave the guards, it was like open season on the patients. The guards just, you know, took it to another level, which was torturing men in, in a scalding hot shower. They tortured five or six other men before they killed Darren Rainey. And had somebody listened to me and actually, at the very minimum, transferred the guards that were doing all this, Darren Rainey would still be alive. But they didn't do that. They just kept looking the other way. And the the head of the psychiatric unit, uh, her name uh, in reality is Christina Perez, and her name came out in a New Yorker magazine article that profiled uh, one of the mental health techs who was a woman who also saw the beatings of... of inmates and she stayed silent she never came forward either I was the only one but in the New Yorker uh, article it, it it showed how her anxiety went through the roof she started losing her hair and and then eventually she quit um, it was a hostile environment and it it just got worse after I left and and so um, it's very hard to change uh, a system that's so deeply entrenched. It's not impossible, but it's it's pretty pretty darn hard. <laughs> we have been documenting yeah, cases was... like this here, New Abolitionist Radio, for years, and I remember us watching a video where, in one prison in Florida, the guard in the tower above allowed a prisoner to go on a rampage with a knife, and in particularly opened a door to a cell in which another fellow prisoner was in that this, I guess the guard had put a hit up and allowed this man to go in there and slice this man up, just open the door for him to be able to do it. So we've seen that as well as the fight clubs that are there where they are betting right. on prisoners who battle basically to the death or maiming each other. 
Right, right. Just for sport, so that the guards can bet on the outcome. And if an inmate who, uh, uh, it, you know, is is a relatively decent guy, stands up and and does, uh, you know, a complaint or a grievance, then he's singled out for retaliation and sometimes killed. So, you know, they they want to keep all of this illegal activity under wraps and they'll go to ex- extremes to keep it that way and uh yes sir uh even 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 guards that stand up against these criminal guards will be retaliated against that's why we see so few guards standing up you know um mr mallincrop before um let me give out the telephone number in case our listening audience anyone has any questions or comments that Telephone number is 866-510-9025, 866-510-9025. Hit star, star on your telephone keypad or computer pad, and that will uh, let us know. That will put you in our uh, questioner's queue, and we'll come to you. But please be mindful of your background noise. I'll, I'll call you out as soon as I see you. Um, but as I was hearing you talk about, you know, Fight Club and use that, you know, and popular, and, and this is the, this is a sad commentary just on society, but I was thinking about this new series based on a Marvel superhero called Luke Cage, and it was pretty pop, it's a pretty popular series on Netflix, but in the, in the uh, first episode of that, or first few episodes of that, it, that was what uh, he got sucked into uh, before he was a spirit of men in the pond. But he was there was a fight club, and so that just tells me that you know wider society, Hollywood filmmakers know about this, and and you know and you put this in a in a movie. Now I don't know if that was in the original Luke Cage comic book series, which came out in the seventies that he was fighting in prison, but I'm sure that these fight clubs, uh, I'm a, I don't know if I want to call them fight clubs, but, but these Mandingo fights, you know, uh, to quote another film from, uh, what was that Django prisoners being forced to fight, fight each other. Uh, It's just a sad commentary on society that, you know, now it's just part of entertainment now. It's entertainment. So, uh, Johanan, I think you were trying to speak. Well, no, we could follow uh, what what you were just bringing up there. I mean, I I know uh, one thing I wanted to to ask, though, is just I'm I'm interested in the arc of uh, your personal evolution, uh, George, from the time when we first spoke about this and you came on as a guest and for the first time that you can, you know, said outward that you considered yourself an abolitionist. And then we watched over the next year or so, you know, more interviews and more speaking engagements, the book getting published, um, seeing the book banned in prisons. I mean, all these things that you've taken the, the, the brunt of, of the abuse of the abolitionist, you know, of, of someone that's trying to get freedom, for those that don't have a voice and seeing what the state will, is willing to do to you, seeing what the system is willing to do to you. What, what do you have to report to us as far as your personal evolution over this time? Yeah, that's, that's a, a great question. And originally I was trying to do two things, get justice for Darren Rainey. And I was looking at prison reform, but since I got deeply into the issue, <clears throat> 
and that include come that includes coming on your show um, because I tell you what, until you uh, gave me the heads up, I didn't know that the Thirteenth Amendment abolished slavery while at the same time making it legal uh, for somebody who's convicted of a crime. So um, that was always with me, and so. As, as I started to get out there more, and I've done over two, uh, two dozen television and radio shows, it's probably close to 30 now. I've been, you know, in the New Yorker, I've been on Think Progress, uh, I did Democracy Now!, I was on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and I did uh, a couple of spots for, what's that? And uh, you were also with Ruby Sales, Sister Ruby Sales. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and I, I did uh, a couple spots on Russia Today, one for uh, Chris Hedges. He's a, a Pulitzer Prize winner. So I, I've elevated my gain in a sense, but I never forgot the 13th Amendment that you guys uh, mm-hmm. put me on to. And September 9th of this year, just a few months back, there was – a call for a nationwide prison work stoppage. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that there was a lot of solidarity for a lot of different reasons because uh, guys who were short timers who would get out soon, they weren't going to go on strike because these guards would write up phony reports and, and take away their game time, meaning that they could be in for years more if they decided to join the strike. Uh, But the reason that these men struck was primarily a prison slavery because hundreds of corporations benefit from these incredibly low wages that are forced on these inmates, and these inmates are coerced to work in these corporate settings because if they don't, as I said, phony disciplinary reports, uh, they could actually get more charges. You know, like, for example, a guard could slip and fall and bruise his forehead, and then say a, 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 an inmate struck him. You know, and then that's assault and battery. And then, you know, you get more time. So these guards have a lot of power to, to make these uh, uh, inmates work, and then a lot of inmates will just work because they're bored. There are no programs to train them in, you know, let's say plumbing or electrical or car repair. There, there are no educational programs. So these, these men and women are just sitting around all day doing nothing. So they'll, they'll take these jobs working for 23 cents a day, and uh, that is slave labor. And... I want to point out something about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton kept saying, we're already a great nation. And Donald Trump Trump kept saying, uh, make America great again. I'm sorry, but both of them had it totally wrong. As, as I've come to understand slavery and how abhorrent and horrible slavery is, no country can call itself great 
if it still has legalized slavery as part of its constitution. So based on that, we were never a great country. They both had it wrong. And I don't see us becoming a great country until we repeal the 13th Amendment and ratify an amendment in its place that abolishes slavery everywhere for all time. That's the only way that we can actually become a great country, because in my mind, if we still have slavery on the books, that's not cutting it. Indeed. Indeed, brother. Well said. Did that answer your question? Your honor? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so, That's absolutely. So, yeah. George plays the abolitionist. <laughs> we yeah, have been, yeah, and, we've been intricately involved in that prison labor work strike, strike that you were talking about, helping in the organizing and getting the words out and bringing on the organizers here so they could tell the world what was going on. And the last count that we had, it was as much as 24 states and something like 46,000 prisoners who were involved in it. In Alabama, at one point, even the guards joined in on the prison work strike and refused to go to work, leaving the warden to feed the prisoners. Since then, there has been a lot of uh, re retribution from the guards and from the prisons. Yep. Uh, the First Amendment uh, a violation where they stopped all communications. Here in South Carolina, three prisons basically shut down just so information wouldn't be able to travel in and out of the prisons. The last thing they wanted was an organized work strike that would show exactly what's happening in the United States today with prison labor. Right, right. And, you know, we can't, we can't point our fingers at China and say, oh, you're using prison labor and that's horrible when we're doing it ourselves. And, and as I said, hundreds of companies benefit, and that makes the playing field uh, not level. You know, how can a company that's paying its workers full minimum wage compete with a company that's using prison slave labor? You know, we, and we want to say, oh, well, we're a free market, and we're, you know, uh, you know, capitalism is king and all of that. Well, that goes against that whole, the whole spirit of competition. It's unfair. And, and so this is what people don't realize. That, and the companies that benefit from slave labor are companies like Victoria's Secret, Walmart, uh, Whole Foods, I will point out, when they found out that one of their suppliers used prison labor in a, in a fish farm, they dropped that supplier. So Whole Foods is, is at least becoming more socially aware and, uh, you know, took steps to, you know, fall in line. But a lot of these other companies that benefit from low wages, they're more than happy to keep that going. Indeed. We've been eating out of whole potatoes for years, and they are made by prisoners. Yeah, yeah. And, and so to, to sort of answer your question how I evolved, that that is definitely an issue of mine and given and then the other issue of course is because i am a psychotherapist and mental health is very important to me uh i want to see a massive reduction if not the the complete elimination of the incarceration of the severely mentally ill and to do that we've got to have programs of early intervention starting in our school system and I happen to work for a program like that for the Dade County Public School System, 
but they ran out of money and fired my agency. So we need to get to these children when they, they first show signs of mental illness. And statistically, half of all adults that suffer lifelong mental illness had symptoms by the age of 14. And I was working with middle school uh, students exactly that age. And three quarters of these adults had signs by the age of 24. So when we don't uh, provide treatment programs for these young adults, they not only don't graduate, but quite often will fall in with the wrong group. They will self-medicate because they want to feel better. They're, they're, they're trying to uh, address their symptoms their, themselves. So they're using street drugs. They get arrested. They get thrown into the system. And then they're in the revolving door of the criminal justice system that, that criminalizes uh, mental illness. It criminalizes yes, addiction. Yeah. Well, I understand around 20% of our prisoners are suffering from mental illness and somewhere almost 400,000, and I think that that is a conservative number. Right. Now, that's severe mental illness, 20%. 5% of the total are actively psychotic, but overall, 60% of all men and women in prison and jails suffers some form of mental illness that requires treatment in any given year. That's 60%. Uh, you know, and but 20% are the ones that are severely mentally ill that have delusional personality disorder, paranoid schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder. Uh, you know, all the all the things that can go horribly wrong for humans. Uh, it, it, this is what 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 we we're finding with it's that like twenty percent. It's like a devil's island with walls. It's like a devil's island with walls. We're sending these people yeah. who you have just described right next to people like Sandra Bland, who just didn't use a left turn signal when the cop was right behind her, or somebody who couldn't pay their fines or their fees, or couldn't afford the bail, and were totally innocent, and kids like uh, Khalil Bra Khalil Browder, and we put them all together yeah. and call them the same thing. Right, right, and and prison. Our prisons are set up to make people worse. And you mentioned Khalif Browder. He was a normal 16-year-old boy. And they, they ended up having him in solitary for two years in Rikers Island. He was held without going to court for three years. And even though he got counseling once he got out and his story, you know, came out, he was getting counseling. He was getting help. He went on the view. He, you people knew about him, and he still committed suicide. That's a guy who's getting a lot of help, and he committed suicide. How about the average person who comes out who's mentally ill going in, then they come out? You know, they're going to reoffend in some stupid way, and, and then they end up back in. So, so this is just a system that's set up to enrich these uh, private providers, either either like the the corporate the uh, the CCA, which is the corporate the Corrections Corporation of America, or the Geo Group, or the people that I work for, Horizon Health. You know, when they got the contract in Florida, they cut back on their medical services to make a profit. 
And they did that by not treating people with cancer. They wouldn't send people out for a consult because that costs money. And so we, we, had a situ we have a situation where these inmates in prison have no power. It's very hard for them to get proper mental health treatment or medical treatment. And in fact, um, my uh, ward, my former prison psychiatric ward, was sued by several um, uh, concerns to provide good mental health programming, which they didn't. I mean, the, the, the men on my side of the unit, they stayed locked down in single man cells 24 hours a day. They came out for rec when the guards felt like doing it. They came out for my counseling and group counseling but otherwise they were just stuck in their cells all day long. That's not conducive to mental health treatment. No, it's not. And we know that the reason that they keep so many people there and try to keep them there longer and even put them in solitary confinement is all, always profit-driven. The more bodies you have, the more you're going to get in. It's just in the contracts that are being held, like with the GEO group in Florida, demand that those prisons stay full up to 80% for the next 20 to 25 years. So basically... I've, I've heard 98%. It's, it's 100 in Arizona. There's three prisons in Arizona that have 100% guaranteed occupancy. And then there are laws that back that up called uh, low crime taxes, where if those prisons aren't filled, the taxpayer is responsible for making up the costs in this low crime tax. So basically our courts with a 95% uh, uh, plea bargain rate, which is unconstitutional for the Sixth Amendment to begin with, have become nothing but right. processing plants, meat grinders. And the police now are just slave catchers who are enforcing some of the most racist and most segregational and specific to minority laws that you can imagine, particularly when we look into the debtors' prisons situations and the fines and the fees and the stops and frisks and the... Uh, search and seizures that are going on are mainly against people of color in their communities and often the entire county counts on that money for it to run as you uh, specifically stated Florida's biggest state industry is prison yeah yeah that's that's the biggest agency and and I'm I'm hearing about these abuses just all over the place and and it's a it's a situation that no one seems to be really doing anything about, and which is really disheartening because it comes back to, uh, for me, uh, are we a great country? And the answer is no, no, we never were, you know. And no, no great country warehouses its severely mentally ill in the prison system. No great country does that. Mm -hmm. So we we've got a we've got a lot of work ahead of us. And um, honestly, with, with this uh, turn of political events, and, and now we've got a, a Republican-run Congress and uh, Senate along with the president, uh, it's anybody's guess as to what's going to happen. But I can tell you what, uh, if Donald Trump is really serious about uh, making this country great, the 13th Amendment should be number one on his list, not right spending more money on the military, not giving tax breaks to the filthy rich, and not building a wall 
It's got to be the 13th Amendment. This is a stain on this country. We've had um, a relationship with slavery that exceeds 400 years. And, and it's, it, enough is enough. Let's end slavery. Let's give this country a chance to be great. Amen. Amen to that. You know, yeah, I've seen yeah. three transitions, three <clears throat> paradigm shifts in the, in the formation of what we see today as slavery. It went from the chattel slavery to prison leasing where they use the same people who were previously enslaved in this new scheme where they worked them right back on the plantations, on the railroads, and in mines. And then money came in through the labor of those people that they incarcerated. And then the next transition came when they no longer needed the labor, they just needed to warehouse the bodies and then collect taxpayer money for every person that they were warehousing. And that led to this, what we call, mass incarceration. And then after 2012, 2013 in particular, when 37 states passed legislation that allowed them to use their prison population for corporate labor, we saw the return of using that labor, not just the warehousing, but now you got the labor too. And we've seen that explode to the point, as you said earlier, many of these major global corporations are using prison slave labor in their daily business practices. If you call up, for instance, on a Verizon or AT&T network looking for assistance with your phone, you may be talking to a prisoner in California working out of a factory call center right there in the prison. Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, if you, this could be hotel reservations, airline reservations. These call centers uh, are all over the place manned by prison slave labor. And here's, here's something that, that I read uh, this summer. Um, in some instances, because uh, the, the inmate is, is deemed a risk, okay, the government actually pays the companies an additional $2,500 a year to employ prison labor. And if you do the math, the most I've seen anybody paid on a daily basis was $4.93. So if you multiply that by, you know, 52 weeks, it comes out to, you know, right about $1,250, which is half of that $2,500. So not only are they paying these people horrible wages, but then the government is making it profitable. The government is, I mean, it's such a scam. Why are we paying them to, to employ these people at substandard wages? Now, yes. here's, here's something I'd like to point out, is that if we paid the inmate worker minimum wage, not only would that worker potentially be able to pay child benefits, which in many cases they haven't paid for years, okay, but they would be able to uh, afford this whole new round of expenses. Like, for example, if they want to go see a doctor, now they're having to pay co-pays in some situations. And then canteen and phone, those are overpriced. So, and then the, in the situation where um, the person has to pay restitution to their victims, they're making money. They can actually maybe do that. 
pay them those types of wages, and in some states we don't pay them at all. Um, how is that going to make things better? You know, these these uh, uh, people are you know have no money going in. Then we give them a bus ticket and say good luck, and 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 dump them out of prison. You know, what if they had some money to start a business? You know, if you're even at minimum wage, if you were in prison ten years making minimum wage. You would have thousands of dollars when you got out, and you could actually do something with that. George, uh, I think they count on recidivism. I believe it's 75% or around that of state prisoners uh, return to prison within five years, and roughly half of the federal prisoners do the same. So they count on that. That's reusable resources. It's not human beings. Those reusable resources that will be back within five years. Count on it. Uh, fellas, we're at the top of the hour. We need to uh, transition to our next segment. Before we do that, however, uh, George, I want to thank you again for coming back on. And you said it was two years when you was last with us. Oh, we got to have you on more than that now. Uh, so we'll make an effort to make that happen throughout 2017 to have you come back and give us updates. But uh, please tell people how they can uh, get uh, your book, which the title is Getting Away with Murder, um, a true story. Right. So tell them how they can get the book. Yeah, um, that's available everywhere. It's available on Amazon. And uh, if you want to find out more about me, uh, just uh, go to gettingawaywithmurder.org. And that's Getting Away with Murder, one word. I've got a blog, uh, I've got to actually do more blogging, but I've got a pretty extensive website that uh, will explain the issues and give, give the, the uh, visitor a, a chance to see what I'm, what I'm trying to accomplish. And I, I'm on a mission, you know, I'm, I'm trying to change things, and if I can do it one person at a time, uh, you know what, there's 260 or 300 million more I better get to work. Uh, but in the meantime, um, everybody out there can help me keep my human rights campaign alive because we don't get paid. And if you buy my book, not only will you get an education as to how the mentally ill are treated, but I offer solutions in the epilogue. So you're going you're gonna to be entertained. Uh, my book's been been called uh, Darkly Humorous. So please, go out and get my book. Especially since it's been banned from Florida prisons. You know you want to read the banned stuff. (laughs) You want to read the banned stuff. You know, if you want to read a banned book. (laughs) Thank you so much, George. It's a pleasure hearing from you again, and uh, we are glad that you're still in the fight here, and we look forward to fighting alongside you further throughout the coming years until this fight is done. And we all are going thank to you. do all. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, you guys are doing great work at, at getting uh, the 13th Amendment issue out there. And, you know, now I can say that I am solidly an abolitionist. And Ooh, that, uh, you know, sooner or later, we're going to get that 13th Amendment kicked off the books. Amen to that. Amen to that. We'll talk okay, more about baby. this next time, uh, brother. Peace. All right, you guys take care. All right, take care, George. All right. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on Black Talk Radio Network. 
Facebook.com. That was George Mallinckrodt from uh, author of the book, How to Get Away with Murder, A True Story. We'll be right back after these messages. The Black Talk Media Project funds the use of new media technology in efforts to restore independent black voices to the myriad of issues affecting Afro-descendant people all over the planet. If media can control the minds of the masses, as Malcolm X once said, then you must ask yourself, who is in control of the media targeting the masses of black people today? Help bring back independence, self-determination, and respect for black culture in the production of global media by joining the effort to crowdfund new black media for the new millennium. Visit blacktalkmediaproject.org for more information on how you can invest in public black radio for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we are going to get right into our, our story and try to get through as many of them as we can, two or three of them, before we get into our final segments for the evening. The first one I would like to get off, get, get out right away is some good news. You know, uh, we've been pounding the drums about this thing, and it's making people start to just think a little bit about what they're facing. As uh, we've said before, in 2012, at the State of the Union address, there was nothing, zero words, about criminal justice by President Obama, who had been president for four years. And here we are now coming into 2016, 2017, and everybody and their brother has had to say something about it. And now the good news is the drug war has failed, says the governor of uh, Vermont, and he's about to pardon thousands of people who were convicted for pot. Johanna, uh, if you want to pull that story up and, and cover it, uh, I think I gave him the intro on what's going on. I put it on New Abolitionist Radio for our readers. And also, just to backtrack a little bit, all of the stories we discussed with George Mallinckrodt earlier are available on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook. So you can go through and see the entire thing unfold uh, regarding Brother Darren Rainey and his murder by Florida guards. Indeed, indeed, that was good. Uh, uh, good I'm sorry, Johanan. Before you start, just one yeah, quick, one quick suggestion. Now that we're live streaming the show on that Facebook page, if in the future, if um, uh, when we post the stories we cover, we could put them in the comment section of the video, so as people listening to that later, hey, those stories right there. Just a suggestion. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, Johanan. Problem. Good idea. Uh, I was just saying, I'm, I was just happy to hear that George is, you know, is that much more excited about his position as an abolitionist um, from kind of tentatively agreeing that he was as we presented the information and he had to admit kind of like, yeah, I guess you're right. I, I am an abolitionist. But to come to a point where now he's going out, like you said, having done, you know, a couple of dozen, maybe 30 or more interviews on a national and international scale you know, with, with these different uh, news organizations to be coming out as an abolitionist that has worked in the system and has, you know, ideas for how to help 
was definitely encouraging. Uh, this uh, first story, though, like you said, the drug war having failed, um, uh, the governor of Vermont is actually looking at pardoning people for uh, possession. This is from Activist Post. Um, there's a government who's willing to challenge the status quo and few and far between those members of government who not only to reverse all our Johan, and I'm I'm sorry, bro. Yeah, you're going in and out. So um, I know what type of headset you're using. Maybe if you move it just an inch away from uh, your your mouth, that might uh, solve the problem. We're a little better now. Go ahead. We heard the whole sentence. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Guys, brother. Johanna? Just announced one going to Yeah, uh, bro, your audio is bad, so do this. Hang up and call right back in, and in the meantime, um, Max, can you pick up on that? And I have some thoughts on this story, but Johanna, we can get you to hang up and reestablish a new connection. They could clear it up, bro. As you said, it's from the activist post, and it's by Matt Agaris, Montpelier, Vermont. These those members of government who are willing to challenge the status quo and stand against injustice are few and far between. Those members of government who do who not only stand against injustice but take action to reverse are all but entirely mythical. However, Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin is one of those people. Peter Shumlin just announced one of the boldest moves by a politician in recent history. He is going to pardon thousands of people whose lives were ruined by the war on drugs. He said, today, I am announcing an effort using the governor's pardoning power to expedite our move to a saner drug policy and criminal justice system. The governor said on Thursday, decriminalization was a good step, first step in updating our outmoded drug laws. It makes no sense that minor marijuana convictions should tarnish the lives of Vermonters indefinitely. According to the most recent data, in 2014, police arrested 1.5 million people for drug violations in a single year. 83% were possession only. Wow. Of that 1.5 million, 700,993 arrests were for marijuana. 88% of those arrests were for people possessing the plant only. It could have happened in the 1960s, 70s, or 80s. There are thousands of them, said Shumlin, year after year, and now decade after decade, millions of otherwise entirely innocent people have been deprived of their freedom, kidnapped. Wow, did he say this? Kidnapped? Had their lives ruined? were thrown in a cage or killed by police officers who are just doing their job while enforcing this immoral war on drugs. Given these numbers, everyone in America is either related to or knows someone who has been arrested for drugs. An unfortunate minority have even seen their family members or friends slain in the name of this immoral war. 
The effects of police ruining so many lives, enforcing drug laws, have created the hostile environment in which we find ourselves today. There's quite a bit more to this story. Please go to New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook and read it. You can also join our uh, own network, New Abolitionist Radio Network, our, our community. Is it community slash? Oh, uh, BTR. BTRcommunity.com will get them there. There you go. And join our community, indeed. Support uh, what we're doing here. So, Johanna, are you back? Johanna. Yep, I'm here. I'm here with you. Okay. All right, all right. Uh, Scott, you said you had some thoughts on this. Yes. um, Like, I no longer do BTR news um, like I was during the week so that I could focus on more managerial things, and, and already that decision is paying off. But I am going to do like a weekend review live stream on Saturday nights from seven to nine, and and my so my first broadcast of BTR News will be this Saturday, and the topic will be the legacy of Barack Obama, and I'm gonna tell you how this ties into his his legacy. Okay, now we know that he is getting a lot of ink and a lot of press for pardoning uh, some of the most egregious cases in the drug war. Uh, which is really a war on people. And he's been getting, what, I don't know how many, it's been over a thousand, they say more than any other president. Okay, but like you guys, one of you guys had rightly pointed out on a prior program, for every thousand he let out, another thousand went in. Okay, so let's not act like we making a dent to the system. Are we happy? And when we take those individuals back, which were kidnapped, and I'm I'm like you, Max, I can't believe he used that word kidnap, because that's the type of language mm-hmm. we use, okay? Because that's what's going on. Slave catchers kidnap people, all right? So, so, but, so, I'm just saying though, this guy is is writing a, um, he's going to pardon these people on, and he could go, he could do better. They can always do more. But but in the very least, he's going to pardon those on nonviolent what looks like marijuana possessions, or is it just you know all nonviolent drug crimes or, or what have you? He said it's marijuana uh, possessions, but he's going to go back as far back as the sixties. He said because far- people are still wow. freaking sixties. Wow! Wow! Wow, now he needs to follow that up with something that was done by the governor of Maryland recently. And that is when he restored to full citizenship because even once you get off the prison plantation, if you got that felony slave brand on your record, then guess what? You're not, you're still a slave. You're still a slave. You're in, you're a, 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 a involuntary servant still to the system. So you don't have full citizenship. So what the governor of Maryland did was restore, I think it was like tens of thousands of them. And the uh, Republican legislature tried to block that. And so he was saying that, oh, he can't just do a blanket pardon like that or restoration like he got to do each and every one individually. So he was like, okay, okay, whatever, whatever. So I guess he got a rubber stamp. You know, you can get the rubber stamps with your signature. (laughs) And I guess he hired some people to just go through and stamp those tens of thousands. So just letting these people out is what I'm saying to the governor of Vermont. 
is is not going to uh, right the wrong that has been done done to them without restoring their full citizenship rights, so that they can exercise their right to own arm to possess firearms, own arms, Second Amendment rights, so that so that uh, um, they won't have. Um, that on that slave brand on their record to where people will take advantage of them for that and what have you. And so he still needs to follow up with those he let out by restoring their rights and removing that slavery felony brand uh, from their records. So, but again, though, uh, we're talking about Vermont. Now we, I do know that Vermont is mainly a white state. It's like 1%, maybe black, something like that. If I recall correctly, black. Yeah. Now we still they're going to have like the rest of the nation a disproportionate incarceration rate or enslavement rate for black people. So, but I'm still willing to bet you the majority of the people affect that'll be affected by this attempt at practicing justice will be white in that state. I'm willing to bet you. And it just it just you know, I'm happy that these things are coming about, but make no mistake, I know the reason or one of the reasons they may be coming about. And that is just like my own county, which is third in the nation of of people overdosing on heroin. And and it's been called this county I live in, well that's the state, third in the nation. The county I live in has been described as the meth capital of North Carolina. So it's a lot of white people that's being affected by this heroin epidemic similar to the 90s crack epidemic, which focused entirely on the black community. So a lot of these rural white folks are finding themselves caught up in the system and these politicians are being are, are waging a kinder and gentler uh, drug war. And even my own county uh, uh, recently announced a diversion program to help all these poor uh, people on substance have substance abuse problems. And it's the right way to do, go. It's the right thing to do. But make no mistake, I know as long as it was just being seen as impacting non-white people, that they were more than than happy to leave things as is. But now, like uh, I'm saying here in Vermont, where it's a primarily white state, primarily white people getting arrested for simple cannabis so so I I, I I think that that might be his motivation he's getting a lot of pressure from white America to to act in a more humane fashion towards these individuals but again regardless of how justice comes about I'll take that justice and we going but again it, this still falls way short of justice, but it's an attempt. It's an attempt. So on Sunday, I mean Saturday, I'll be talking about the legacy of Barack Obama and what he could have done to make his mark on 21st century slavery and human trafficking. All right, so that's what I got on that story. It's Johanna, amazing that a governor can do this, but the president doesn't even consider it. Johanna. I'm here. I was listening to your commentary, man. I mean, you broke it all the way down. That's it, we, no. We I was wondering if you had some comments. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Just I'm just a uh, cold. Which sounds sour about any of it, whether it's the people being exonerated or uh, be, their uh, sentences being commuted by the president. You know, like we point out, the fact of the matter is what it is. He's used his Justice Department to continue 
to uh, uh, lawsuits, these same actions to keep people going in. So if he sets out a hundred or two hundred or eight hundred, you know, there's thousands and thousands going in. We know this is fact from that's what we're here to do and it's the same thing with this situation in Vermont um, uh, very close uh, close by on that eastern northeast uh, area there where we know the governor of the state of uh, was that Maine the governor that came out and said that you got all these black drug dealers coming up here yes, that was Maine. Selling drugs. yeah selling drugs to the, to the white kids and they leaving these uh, uh, babies with the white girls, and you got any named off these uh, ghetto gangster names as best he could. I mean, so we know that these actions. Uh, Chris Christie made a comments about uh, having a kinder, gentler way of handling, you know, the drug situation, and we all know someone that has been, you know, adversely affected by hard drugs and prescription drugs and opiates and so forth. So we see this is a uniform closing of the ranks around white nationalism, white supremacy, these people are still believing that they, they got to save themselves, they got to save theirs, and the empathy that's there for their own, it, it's obvious. But it, like you said, we can't discount justice being done in any kind of form, even if our people tend to come out in a secondary case, tend to be overlooked. Uh, we're looking into the millions of people since cops first came on TV back in the day and the hype of Marion Barry and all these other cases where you see these black folks that's out here with a crack pipe and that's the greatest criminal you've ever seen is a is a is a street bum black dude with a crack pipe. He's just a straight up criminal. So now we see a change because the people that are affected are prescription drug abusing high school students, white high school students, white kids in their mom's basement that's going from prescription drugs into getting on hardcore heroin and methamphetamines and we're seeing a reform come, well, so be it. Let the reform come, but let's make sure it extends to everybody who's behind those bars based on nonviolent drug possession, drug charges of some sort or another. Just end it. Yeah, this governor is just getting ahead of the curve, basically. He knows what's going down. Just recently, and this is not one of our stories, but I'm just going to share it briefly. In Georgia, their Supreme Court, struck down a law that imposed up to a 12-year prison sentence for persons caught with small amounts of marijuana, calling it unconstitutional. Now, this has been going on for some time, and now we have a Supreme Court telling you this is unconstitutional. You can't be doing this to people, but they're doing it. And the people that it has been done to need to be freed. That's the part we can't seem to get through to these activists out there when you start talking about war on drugs. What about the people who are in cages? While you're changing the laws and doing all this, they need to get out. And this, i got to applaud this, Governor, for seeing that and giving these people back their freedom because they were kidnapped. Indeed. I ain't even going to talk about compensation. Let's talk about that later. Let's do one thing at a time. Get them out. That's important, right? Get them out. And then we'll talk about uh, compensation for the damages done to them and their families. Right on, sir. Max, Max, um, to your point, I feel the same way about the reparations movement as I have been seeing a lot of, not a lot, but that is a, a... Often a topic of conversation I come across certain people having and reparations. But like you said, okay, 
yeah, these people do need to be uh, compensated for, for being kidnapped. They need reparations for modern day slavery because that's what happened. And that's what I try to get to cause to people in the reparations movement in the black community is y'all keep talking about reparations and slavery and past tense. But even the United Nations, which just came to this country, went to different cities took evidence, testimony, went back, made a determination that the United States owes reparation not for slavery past, but that they owe for that too, but those people were dead. But for the continuation of slavery and, quote, and the terrorism that's associated with it. So even back in the 1800s, if you wasn't an enslaved African, you were still terrorized by the system of racism. So, so this is what I'm trying to get to across to my sisters and brothers on, on, you know, who talk about reparations. Yes, I'm not telling you not to do the work that you're doing, but if it ain't part of your platform to actually end slavery, then damn, I don't know what to say uh, without, you know, I'm just scratching my head at that. It seems logical. End slavery, reparations. End slavery, then come to reparations. All right? So let's end slavery. That should be the top of, like George Mallinckrodt said, that should be job number one on Trump's list as CEO of USA Inc. to end slavery. If he want to talk about some America being great, that should be at the top of the list of every activist, grassroots organizer, or anybody out there talking about racism in, in the system of white supremacy. If you ain't talking about slavery, then you miss, you missing the root of it all. Racial classifications came about in the United States uh, uh, specifically towards the enforcement of slave laws. So that that's 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 my only point. I ain't mean to to rant on. What's the next story? You're absolutely right, man. And we only got a little while, so I want to squeeze in this one more. I think we can get, and then we'll refer you to the stories we didn't get to share with you and put them on New Abolitionist Radio so you can go see them because they are important. The next one comes up in regards to a local jail which faces legal challenges in court uh, right now over a practice that they have initiated. Now, this comes out of uh, Minnesota and is from the Christian Science Monitor. Monitor. It says the county of Minnesota has come under fire for its practice of making all arrestees pay a booking fee at the time of their arrest, regardless of whether they are charged or convicted of a crime. And uh, from December 27, 16, a Minnesota county has come under fire. I read that part. Let's move on. The Supreme Court will soon decide whether to hear a challenge to the booking fees in Ramsey County, Minnesota, from two men who were made to pay $25 at the time of their arrest, Corey Statham and Eric Mickelson. Each had their respective charges of disorderly conduct and noise ordinance violation dismissed shortly after they were jailed, but like all arrestees in Ramsey County, their $25 was not automatically returned to them upon release. The booking charge in Ramsey County is one of the many similar fees and fines that have come under fire in recent years as underfunded state and local judicial systems look for new ways to bring in much-needed revenue. You know what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about prison, arrest, jails, and they're talking about how they're going to use this to bring in much-needed revenue. 
Under some systems, there's no way to reclaim the money lost. Even when an arrestee has his charges dismissed or is never charged at all. Other places, such as Ramsey County, it is possible to get one's money back, to get one's money. But opponents of these fees argue many instant arrestees don't have the time, know-how, or courage to do so, creating a system that critics say disproportionately punishes the poor. Now, I have one of our friends and our listeners tell me why they're going through this, and she provided me with a link, so let me read some of this other story, which has the same, do with the same thing, from the Christian Monitor, and, uh, oh, here it is. This one comes from Twin Cities, and it says, Ramsey County Commissioners approved a series of maneuvers Tuesday to deal with a $250,000 revenue shortfall in the sheriff's budget this year, and the potential for a similar shortfall next year. None of the changes imperils the 2010 or 11 budgets or will affect property taxes severely, county official says. Outgoing Sheriff Bob Fletcher said the 2010 shortfall was due primarily to a projected revenue bump from an increase in the county jail's inmate booking fee to $25 from $10 in previous years. Using the $25 fee, the county board has projected $500,000 in revenue, but the actual revenues appear to be closer to 220 since 2005. Revenue from prisoners at the county jail has been above the Fletcher's conservative estimates. This marks the first year the estimates revenues fell short. So that's why right there. See, this was back in 2011. They weren't making as much money on the little 10000 They wanted to make a half a million for their county. So they raised it up to 25 for the sheriff's budget. If this is not illegal, then what the hell is? This is a county using its citizens as marks in a hustle that takes their money through arresting them, whether they're innocent or guilty. What if you need $1,000 today? Well, let's just go out and arrest a bunch of people. No matter if they're innocent or guilty, just get the $25 and send them packets. This is crazy, and I'm looking forward to what the Supreme Court has to say about it. Um, sound like RICO charges Systemic. to me uh, again. Didn't we just report on the SPLC? Now, I can't say for sure if they heard it on New Abolitionist Radio when we were hashing out the Ferguson report, but as far as I know, uh, we were the first to suggest publicly that uh, these police departments working with the municipalities, they're all part of the municipality, be sued on RICO charges. Sounds very similar to that case that the SPLC just successfully won in in federal civil court, which led to that particular comp- company not only shutting down and losing its contract in that uh, county, but all over the country where they had contracts. This sounds very similar, and it sounds like a criminal conspiracy to 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 uh, 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 steal people' freedom and to extort money out of them for the coffers of the municipality. So what we need is again, I, I run a media organization. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an attorney. Although I can pick up on things very quickly, but I cannot go to court and argue these cases. Okay, I, I can't do that. But I don't. I guess I need to reach out to the people in Pennsylvania over there at the Abolitionist Law Center 
Because if you're going to be bearing that name, and they do great work. They're working on behalf of political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal, and they've done great work on his behalf. We still ain't got him out yet, but they do great work. So I would like to see them pick up these type of cases. Um, SPLC, that's the Southern Poverty uh, Law Center. I ain't got nothing against y'all doing it. Whoever will do it. But I mean, where are where is the NAACP Legal Defense Fund on these law on these RICO lawsuits in these cases? Where where is these ambulance chasers? You know, every time a young black man gets shot, there's always those attorneys that's representing them, right? They're suing on their behalf, like Benjamin Crump and Associates and whatnot. So we need y'all. We need y'all who went to school. This is your expertise. You have the licenses to argue these cases in court. We need y'all. The SPLC has already proved that it is le- it is sound legal strategy to go after these these uh, 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 municipalities and these companies that are contracted with them on RICO charges in civil court. That's what it sounds like to me. I could be wrong. Just this is uh, organized racketeering. You have entire counties involved in all the departments that are involved in their justice there, from the sheriffs and police all the way up to the county clerks and the mayors and the councilmen. And everybody is trying to get some money out of these people by simply arresting them and putting them in jail and using that to fund whatever it is you want to fund, whether it's to buy more guns to get more people. Is that what you need more money for? It's ridiculous. So, yes, I would make echo the call. Uh, come on out and let's get to work. Let's get this done. If we can't do the 13th Amendment today, we can do this today. You can start these suits, which have shown to be successful now time and time again. And let's get the funding we need to really end slavery. You know, in New York right now, just on New Year's Eve, Governor Cuomo over there just vetoed a bill that would provide uh, legal services for people who are arrested in New York. And, you know, New York is famous for railroading people into their prisons, and they make the most money off of it out of all the states in the union. But apparently, having legal representation, which is guaranteed to you through your constitutional rights, is just simply too expensive for New York. We just can't give it to you, so y'all just keep on going into them jails at a 95% plea bargain rate, violating that constitutional right, and sitting there like Khalif Browder did for two or three years with no charges whatsoever, we just can't afford to give you a lawyer. Hmm. Hmm. Man, we got a lot on our plate. Like you said, New York being out there, uh, what was it, two and a half billion dollars they generated off of uh, uh, parking tickets, I think 500 million of parking tickets and the rest was just regular or civil or municipal. Remember they burned all of the evidence, You remember that story oh, when we yeah, said when they, when they were burning the tickets and the records yes. they had like a half a million in littering tickets? Half a million littering tickets that they were collecting on with people with thick ticks just names that didn't even exist. <laughs> yep. Yep. So we definitely, that's what I was saying earlier, systemic. That's the thing that I always try to remind people you know, we get real specific and we talk about individuals and uh, we we do tend to speak about, you know, who is the most most uh, harshly affected, uh, most regularly affected. That's going to be people of color, whether you're talking about these lines being broken down based on poverty, 
or mental illness or lack of political representation, however you want to break it down, whoever's at the bottom most often is someone of color. Uh, of the people, you, you know, of the non-white people, black people are the most. So we're not saying to come out and be like, oh, this is just, you know, kill whitey or we just against white people or anything like that. It's just the system is what the system is. I don't have any issue with any individual necessarily. Even people that have come out outright as straight up enemies or have enacted legislation or have taken actions against us that have done what they've done outside of the people that have killed, you know, obviously I'm not down with that. But when you're talking about the system that's in place, I'm not worried about individuals. It, uh, I hate to see any of these cops get off after killing innocent, unarmed people, obviously. I hate to see, you know, individuals that are out here doing wrong and then like uh, even like what uh, uh, George was saying, you know, with all the way up to the correctional officers, you got people that are good in the system, but they know there's going to be uh, there's going to be some kind of repercussions for coming out and saying something about the bad. Like I have an issue with the bad and with the people that don't want to say anything. Those are people as individuals that are a part of a bad system, though. So if we could just work on the system, the individuals won't have anywhere to hide. I don't have a problem with with individuals. I got a problem with the system. Right, right. I'm watching people nowadays begging Obama to give clemency to their loved ones, a pardon their loved ones. There's hundreds of them coming out. And I'm wondering, why can't we all just work together to get them all out? All of them. Not just one, not yours or his or her loved one, because I got loved ones in there too. But let's work together to get them all out. Indeed. Y'all spoke on uh, Mamiya also. That was a story that came from uh, Brett Grote, one of the attorneys that's on, on his case. Just briefly, I mentioned that they were able to get uh, a legal uh, action taken that, it, that says that the Pennsylvania Prison Correction Department has to give uh, Mumia the hepatitis C drug that has been proven to be effective in over 95% of the people they've administered it to. You know, they have been denying him medical care. He almost died a few times last year um, that, that we know of, other than all the other times we maybe never even heard about. But that is the first step, is getting the Department of Corrections of Pennsylvania to uh, be ordered to provide the drugs to him. Now, but it's not uh, just him. Brent, It'll have wider implications well, on the whole right, state. Right, right, right. With him being so high profile. But Brett Grove was saying uh, that it's already, you know, they already know how the system works and how the, how the story goes. It's likely they're going to appeal, but it's still a step in the right direction to, to be moving towards this. So, I think we got three more Word. stories that we had in the promo before we get to our last segments. We got a story... Well, on the I'm going to zoom through two of them like real quick, Scotty Reed, because the people need to see these things for themselves. We can't describe to you what's happening in detail. You need to see this. The first is a North Carolina school officer picking a little teenage black girl up over his head and slamming her to the ground for trying to break up a fight in school. She body slammed this little girl like she was a 250-pound man who had just tried to kill him. You need to see that. It's one too many times it's happening, and we got a lot of fathers out there. I know we ain't going to put up with this anymore. You brothers need to get together on this. The other one is a story also coming from the same area in North Carolina where a squad of about nine policemen invaded a black family's house because they smelled weed from outside the house. Went in, held them hostage, brutalized the entire family, 
searched their whole house, made them sit there uh, for four to five hours while they waited for a search warrant and then found nothing. After brutalizing his family, this is Nazi Germany style invasion of your home. And I saw people of color wearing uniforms and they're doing that too. I couldn't be even more ashamed now than I was before. It's just a damn shame. Well, and it has to stop you participating in this. You got to just, just leave it alone. Well, the proxy is ever present, but uh, like somebody, I shared that story on a couple of our Facebook pages, but somebody had came back with a meme and they said, but y'all love Denzel in training day, though. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. I mean, yeah. Uh, we got a caller, area code uh, 973. Did you have a question or comment? Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Welcome. Yeah, this, 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 this. <laughs> yeah, this is um, Jersey Girl, Miss New Jersey, if you want to call me. <laughs> well, anyway, um, uh, Jahanan, um stole my thunder. Just got a, a text just about ten minutes ago that Monia is going to be getting his um, hepatitis shot, and I wanted to shout, shout that out so he jumped the gun, which is okay, no problem with that. Um, just listening, I just wanted to give that um, information, and um, also um, just interject, Mr. Reed, you said that you're not going to be doing the uh, BTR news anymore at um, uh, what was four to five? Yeah, four yeah, five not not the live program. Yeah, not the live okay. program, but I'll still be issuing uh, podcasts on um, a day-to-day basis when I'm able. But the live, just the live program uh, will be on Saturdays, a two-hour program from 7 to 9. Okay, so that's going to be starting this Saturday. Are you still going to be doing any type of news during the week at all? Any yes, yes, news? yes. Okay. Yes, I've been doing videos and uploading podcasts. So if you subscribe to uh, Black Talk Radio Network's RSS feed, um, yeah, you'll get those podcasts. But they'll they'll be posted. Okay. Thank you very much, guys. Continue. Hey, Jersey girl. Yes, yes. I'm still still waiting for a reason to come to Jersey. I I need to come home, and I I need to sit down and talk with some of my people out there about how we can solve this problem. I'm hoping you can make that happen somehow. Yeah, just um, I'm on the BTR, TLP, People's Organization, would love to receive you. Actually, I, I would love to send you that video that um, Mr. Hand did. Uh, we, we had our first celebration of the 13th. It was wonderful. He gave a whole historical perspective from beginning to end and how, Flavor, you guys have to really check that out. I'm going to send it to you, um, and you can see we're going to be doing it every year. Every year. So this was our first one that we did, and we're going to be doing it every year in terms of the 13th. And he really gets, uh, he really is an abolitionist at heart. He, he really is. So, yes. Perfect. Yes, I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, we're coming up to our final uh, segments of the evening. And thank you again for calling in uh, as well. We're coming up to our final segments of the evening. Unless you guys have any other stories that you want um, to talk about. Yeah, to the one one story uh, you did. One of the stories you didn't touch upon is uh, um, C. What is it? California prison. Something Cal P I A is blaming yes. over seven thousand prisoners employed for pennies on the hour for injuries they received on the job in prison. Uh, this is a rat's nest of illegal and unconstitutional acts by the state and federal gov- government. We hope to help uncover it further. 
So this is something we'll we'll right. follow up on. Uh, but this sounds to me similar to uh, our favorite sheriff, certainly racist America's favorite sheriff, David A. Clark Jr. up there in Milwaukee County, which has the worst incarceration rates for black men, period, or arrest rates for black men, period. But how he blamed, you, you've had inmates die in his jail, and he's blaming the inmates for them dying, saying, oh, they, they had health issues, or they, you know, I mean, what is he going to blame for the pregnant woman's uh, uh, giving birth in his jail and they ignoring her and the baby dies end up dying so I mean who he gonna blame for that but this is what it sounds like you know they wanna blame blame slaves for slaves getting injured I mean this is just crazy but yeah there is no OSHA in prison industry you don't have occupational safety and hazard organization oversight over what happens to employees in prison. So these people in prisons are being maimed and injured, working in these factories, limbs are being cut off, uh, all kinds of major uh, problems are being occurred, and they have no recourse. Nobody to turn so to. So tell me again, and Max, the, isn't that evidence that they are slaves? Because or else they would fall it. under the OSHA laws, right? They would fall under the Labor Department regulations, right? But since the federal government nor the state uh, uh, governments that that are 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 uh, tasked with overseeing labor, they totally ignore it. So again, again, we are not saying this is slavery to shock you or or to be you know bombastic or anything it's simply a fact the 13th amendment says it and the treatment of people in our society says it now it's not scotty saying it is it's it's what the evidence says right there's this anybody that follows this path is always going to come to the same realization that we came to everybody there is no different realization you're going to come to. You're going to realize that slavery never ended. That it's still being practiced legally today. Now, I'm Max, having a little Max. bit of issue with my computer. We, uh, we got a call, I'm Max. I'm going to you one more time to be able to do a ride of the 21st Century Underground Railroad this week. I'm uh, frozen up over here at the moment. Yeah, Johanan, if you could pull that possible. up. Johanan, we'll pull. share that story about the prisons who are blaming the uh, people who are being injured doing their work on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook and probably uh, revisit it next week. Johanan, if you could pull up the writer, and I already have the abolitionists up, and I'll cover the abolitionists. But before that, we do got a caller from the 678 area code. Did you have a question or comment as we get ready to close out tonight? Yeah, I just have a comment. This is um, COVID number one, R.G. Reed. Uh, Scotty, how you doing? Hey, greetings to you, R.G. Good, good. Uh, I'm glad to be on the line with you, your honey, and Max. This is my first time actually calling the show, so I'll, you know, I'll keep it brief, but I just wanted to... Uh, Second, what you said about slavery and that being the 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 key and understanding white supremacy. You know, I you know on my show, um, I have to admit I don't bring in the slavery aspect enough, and that uh, there are slaves now, and I just think that that point needs to just be reiterated as much as possible. And and to be quite honest, um, I think that. You know, because when I say that, you know, I, I tell people uh, in my own life, I tell them to 
check the 13th Amendment. I'm not making this up. You know, this is not, I'm not saying this to shock, you know, shock you all. You know, when I'm speaking about about these types of things uh, in front of people when we're talking about the race issue. And uh, the, the, the response that I get from people uh, is, 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 well, there are a couple of responses. One is that they're, they're surprised, okay, and, you know, and, and, and they're completely just dumbfounded by what I've just said about slavery not really ending. Uh, and two, another response that I get um, is that people, it, it's almost as if they're intimidated by what I'm saying. And, like, uh, they, they don't even want to hear anymore, almost as if they're embarrassed to even mention, the ter- you know, to even deal with the term slavery and to even acknowledge that the system is still going on right now. So I don't know how we get past that if people aren't even willing to address uh, what the situation is and what the actual problem is because of well because of how they feel or because they don't like it. We've been working on that, brother. As you, as we said early on in the beginning, just in the past four years, we've seen incredible changes and awakenings, and people speaking of this who never wanted to say a single word about it. You know, but now I have to talk about it. So give us a little time. Together, you, me, and everybody who's listening to us right now, and those who don't even know they're being influenced by this conversation here tonight, are going to make this change. We're going to win. I believe Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I, I, I do, too. And all I can say is that on my end, I'm going to make sure that I tie that link in with slavery and the mere fact that it's not something that's in the past it's not something that went on yesterday and that we got over but that is that and that but that is happening right now and 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 you know i think that you can't have enough people reiterating that point so i'm definitely going to do my Mm -hmm. part and uh i'll I'll let you all go because i know you're trying to close out but thanks for taking my call god bless you brother yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, cognitive dissonance is the enemy of information that we try to spit out. So people have been programmed from birth to believe that, oh, Abraham Lincoln was a great man. He abolished slavery. We got to build monuments to him. We got to do little plays about him. And and when the truth of the matter is, is that he was not the great liberator. He was the great deceiver. Because they deceived a whole bunch of people, the entire planet, that slavery was abolished. So when you're facing, when we're, when we acknowledge the fact that the masses have been programmed with this again, I just came to this realization four years ago. Our guest, George Mallinckrodt, a white man, a educated white man, said he didn't even know until it was brought up when he first became a guest on this program. He was talking about the system because he worked in the system and he saw things that didn't sit right with him, but he still didn't come to the realization that the 13th Amendment uh, legalizing slavery was what he was looking at. So it was good to hear him also acknowledge that. So that's what we're up against. We're up against lifetime of programming um, um, that people sometimes just that that computer chip in their mind just rejects it because it doesn't mesh with the programming operating system that's already there. So when you try to program slavery was never abolished into a system that tells them it was abolished in 1865 because Abraham Lincoln was such a great friend to black people, then you're going to have problems. But we got to keep on, keep on, keep on 
uh, coming up with counter programming so that we can uh, eventually overwrite the programming that they have received from the system. Um, Johanan, did you have that uh, writer of the 21st Century Underground ready, Railroad ready? Well, sure, I can pull it up, pull it right on up here. Okay, if you'll do that, sir, because Max was having computer issues, and then after that, I will uh, do the abolitionist in profile. Then we'll go into final comments. Uh, just to let the listeners know, uh, Lotus Place usually comes on Wednesday nights right after New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, Lotus Place is changing their name and changing the format. They will come on at the same time, but they had to cancel tonight due through due to some uh, circumstances out of their control. So there will be no uh, Lotus Place tonight, and uh, that was the last Lotus Place of 2016 because they got something new, and I don't want to give away their name yet uh, for 2017. So, uh, Johanna, you ready? Sure. This week's uh, writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Daniel Larson, uh, released from prison in 2013 after a state and federal courts. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals denied the Attorney General's appeal. In March of 2013, in Los Angeles, federal magistrate Judge Suzanne Siegel ordered Danny's immediate release 14 years after his wrongful imprisonment for possession of a knife. He uh, finally became a free man. In 1999, Daniel Larson was convicted of possession of a concealed weapon after two police officers testified they saw him toss a knife under a nearby car in the parking lot of a bar. Unfortunately, Danny's now disbarred trial attorney failed to dis discover as many as nine percipient witnesses, including a federal or a former chief of police from North Carolina who saw another man, not Danny, toss that knife. Danny's trial did not call a single trial attorney, did not call a single witness and as a result, Danny was convicted and, con and sentenced to 27 years to life in prison pursuant to California's three strikes law. Uh, he had prior convictions uh, that occurred nearly a decade earlier. So that was his third strike. During our po uh, post-conviction investigation, we gathered statements. Um, and this is from the CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org. So uh, again, the Innocence Project is probably the only ones. There's a few uh, university law centers that are also working on exonerations as well. But we definitely need to to see to it that these uh, in uh, conviction integrity units that have popped up to basically cover uh, the the need. I don't know. We're not hearing about the uh, exonerations the way that we were hearing out of uh, Brooklyn's uh, district attorney's office with uh, the now deceased R.I.P. Brother Ken Thompson. Uh, same thing with out of Dallas. Um, where we had uh, Brother Craig Watkins that was down there for just under two years. He was able to get several exonerated as well. When these brothers are making headway, when these people are making headway within the system, we see them suddenly some kind of way disappear from that system or even in Ken Thompson's case, die. So um, this is from the California Innocence Project. Uh, pro project. So like they were saying, that uh, during their post-conviction investigation, they gathered statements from many of the witnesses and presented the evidence to the California courts who summarily denied each petition. So why would the courts just continue to deny petitions? Then we went to federal court and 11 years after his conviction. That's a long time. That's, that's 12 years of slave right there. Basically, 11 years after his conviction, an innocent man finally gets a chance to be released from slavery. Federal district court took the case seriously, held an extensive hearing, reversed the conviction, and ordered him released. That's all it took. Court found that Danny was innocent. The police officers who testified at his trial were not credible, and his trial attorney was constitutionally ineffective for failing to call witnesses on his behalf. So if the police officer is not uh, 
not credible, they need to go into every single arrest that those police officers ever made and see if they were not credible in all the other thousands potentially lives that they adversely affected. Before Mr. Larson was released, the Attorney General applied uh, appealed, excuse me, the judge's ruling. The Attorney General's main argument was that even if Danny was innocent, his conviction should not be reversed because he, he waited too long to file his petition. In other words, an innocent man should spend his life in prison due to a legal technicality. Jeez. Almost three years after his exoneration, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals finally decided to release Danny, although the status of his exoneration will remain in limbo pending the Attorney General's almost certain appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Danny and the California Innocence Project are celebrating. As with all California Innocence Project successes, this was a group effort, and it could not have been done without the tireless efforts of many of our staff and former students. Co-director Jan Stiglitz led charge in Danny's federal case and successfully argued in front of the Ninth Circuit. CIP staff members Alex uh, Simpson, Alyssa, so it just goes on the name people that's in the group. So thank you to all of them. Uh, but the link is up on the New Abolitionist radio stream and as well as on the New Abolitionist radio page. Salute to uh, Brother Danny Larson. Got out after serving so many years, an innocent man out here on that 21st century underground railroad. So again, Salute. the prosecutor says, well, so what if he's innocent? He still should stay yeah. a slave. Wow. This is what we're dealing with, man. What's that? Bringing people seems to take too much paperwork. Nobody wants to yeah. do all that paperwork. Yeah, nobody wants to take the hit. Nobody wants to take that, that statistical hit for being wrong, for getting an overturned conviction, for getting an innocent uh, person that gets that actually beats an effort to convict them. See, they they just they just want to get all convictions, period. They just mm. that's they just believe anybody that they have to talk to just all convictions all the time. And if you're innocent, then this is the fight of your life to prove your innocence. And if it takes you 17 years of being innocent, then make America great again. I mean, this is a great country full of freedom and democracy. Just We have invaded countries for doing less than what we do to these people. We've invaded and bombed out and, dis- and killed the leaders of countries and destroyed the banking systems and the utility systems and the water systems for the people to not even be able to survive. We've done that in America. We've done that around the world to other countries for doing less than what we do to these, to people just like this. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, we do got uh, one final segment. Uh, Nathaniel Booth is going to be our abolitionist and profile. We do these abolitionists and profile um, just to pay homage and respect to abolitionist past whose footsteps we are walking in and upon whose shoulders we stand. And this is just our way of also inspiring new abolitionists because again, you know, I don't want people to think that yes, we don't want to understate the problem, but at the same time, we don't want to overstate the problem. And although the abolitionist past were tricked by the great deceiver, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, they still came, overcame insurmount- what might have seemed like insurmountable eyes to push their will. What was their will? To abolish slavery. So we want to inspire new abolitionists because we know we have to finish the work that these ancestors started. So our abolitionists in, in profile this week. 
is Nathaniel Booth. Uh, he was born in 1826 and he died in 1901 uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was a, a Afro-descended man who escaped from slavery. He was born enslaved on a Virginia plantation in February 1826. At the age of 17, Booth escaped and sought freedom in the North. Arriving about 1844, he settled in Lowell, Massachusetts and opened a barber shop on the first floor of the Middlesex Mechanics Association block located on Dutton Street. In 1849, Edwin Moore, also an escaped uh, enslaved African from Virginia, joined Booth in business as a hairdresser. It was not unusual for African-American barbers and hairdressers in New England to be active in abolitionism and the American Anti-Slavery Society. Their barbershops were often gathering places for black and white abolitionists organizing efforts to end slavery. Together, they planned fundraising fairs, arranged visiting anti-slavery lectures, and helped uh, escape enslaved Africans. Uh, shortly after, I'm getting some feedback from somewhere that, that was kind of throwing me off, uh, but... Um, Let's see here. Uh, shortly after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was passed by Congress, one or two slave catchers were seen in law. As a result, Nathaniel Booth fled to Canada. Immediately and publicly, the local Free Soil Party pleaded with Booth to return to law, offering him full protection. One member expressing a willingness to suffer death rather than let a fugitive slave be caught when it was within his power to prevent it. Shortly after this announcement, Booth returned to Lowell and moved in with the Walker Lewis family. Um, let me see, a family of free black uh, Americans living and working in Lowell and active in the Massachusetts anti-slavery movement and the local Underground Railroad. One year later in 1851, slave catchers were again in Lowell and discovered Booth and demanded that he be returned to his southern plantation owner. In response... Linus Child, agent and CEO of the Boot Cotton Mill, stepped forward and negotiated the price of Booth's freedom from $1,500 to $750. Child then raised the needed money from the local community to complete the purchase of Nathaniel Booth's freedom. As a free man, Booth continued to live and work in Lowell in 1855. The Massachusetts legislature passed the Comprehensive Personal Liberty Laws, which practically nullified the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The South viewed this action as defying the federal constitution and tensions between the North and South grew. In the late 1850s, Nathaniel Booth moved his barbershop to Boston, Massachusetts, and in his work for the abolition of slavery, uh, abolitionist movement, he traveled to Philadelphia where he met Francis Fanny LeCount Johnson uh, and on August the 24th, 1858, they married in Philadelphia. Francis LeCount Johnson was from a prominent African American family in Philly. Uh, in 1859, Nathaniel and Fanny returned to Boston. There, he operated a barbershop and continued to work for abolitionism. After the Civil War, Nathaniel, Fanny, and their young daughter, Ida, moved back to Philadelphia. They had 10 children. And New Abolitionist Radio salutes Nathaniel Booth, 1826 to 
1901. Salute the barbershop. <laughs> Making a big difference from the barbershop. You got to love it, man. Which, which is, by the way, a, a coincidence that R.G. Reed called in because he produces a, a, a broadcast and podcast that's aired on the Black Talk Radio Network called The Barbershop. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the Barbershop seemed to play prominently. From the most high to that brother. Hey, the, uh, a Barbershop seemed to play most prominently in the abolitionist movement. Word. And he just said today from now on, He's going to start making sure he has that key element. I think that would be uh, Most High speaking to us and to him uh, through the circumstances that we just had unfold here. Well, we'll come to the end of our couple minutes over. Uh, it's been a long time since we've been that. And uh, we're going to have our final comments, and uh, we'll see you again in 2017 next week here on Wednesday at 8 p.m. at blacktalkradionetwork.com uh, either one of you brothers want to close it out for the evening start closing yourself yeah I start by saying um, uh, um, it was just great to hear George Malincrot's story about his personal journey uh, when how he started this journey working on the prison plantation observing prison slave life firsthand and then him getting out writing a book then coming on New Abolitionist Radio two years ago uh, hearing about the 13th Amendment, reading it for himself, and coming to the conclusion that this is slavery. And so since I'm against slavery, I got to be an abolitionist. I just love to hear those type of personal stories uh, uh, transforming from someone who believed that uh, slavery had been abolished to one who recognizes that it was not. So it was great to hear that. Um, it just It's going to take individuals working together collectively as we've seen in the abolitionist movement past and for us to solve this problem and everyone can contribute um, as long as they're contributing something constructive as long as they're speaking honestly about what we're dealing with and, and, and um, just focus on replacing it with justice as um, Mr. Fuller would say replacing this system with a system of justice uh, thank you all um, glad you this again our first broadcast we're going into our fifth year of new abolitionist radio and like Max has said in 2016 we coming for uh, 2017 so here's to another year of broadcasting let's hope that the problem gets solved this year in 2017 word Johanna yo you might be on mute Johanna yeah your headset might be muted Johanna Okay, he might have something going on, Max. If you, Scotty? yeah, um, or is it just me? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, I had muted myself. Uh, uh, Johanna, you might have yourself muted, man. But uh, Max, you you want to close out for you and Johanna? He might have something going on and he can't speak. On behalf of Brother Johanna, uh, peace to the abolitionists, death to the oppressors. Tomorrow, uh, we'll be 
coming to our second to last uh, our second to last gathering of the session live, which has been a staple in Columbia, South Carolina now for seven years, building our community, bringing our people together through art and poetry and spoken word. Uh, we'll be celebrating the life of Tavis Brunson while we're there. For those that know, we took a great loss recently. My brother Tavis Brunson passed. So if you want to see Tribal and I tomorrow, we'll be making an appearance there at the session live. Make sure you come on down. Featuring Zuri, it's 9 p.m. at Sensations, 110i, Columbia Northeast Drive, Columbia, South Carolina. So come and check us out. Shout out to my brother Spirit, the tattoo poet, and DJ Pless, Bless the Poet. I'm going to end this the way I started it. Remember it like this, I guess. It's a lot less painful for you to find truth than for truth to come and find you. And remember, the abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know peace. Peace. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's Anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near. If you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up. No matter if the prize is high in the sky.